This morning, I want to invite you to open in God's word to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is in the New Testament. It's toward the back. And I want to invite you to turn there. Um, I sent a, a letter to the church in our preparing for worship. If you don't receive our newsletter on Tuesday and the preparing for worship um, e-newsletter that comes out on Fridays, you need to subscribe to that. And if uh, you somehow unsubscribe yourself and you're like, I don't know how to fix it, you know, just call the church office and Miss Diane Vilmoret would be glad to help you get back on uh, because that becomes a primary way that Tuesday and Friday newsletter, those are ways that we communicate what's going on in the, the life of the church. And, and, and sometimes it's a chance for me to be able to communicate my heart to you. And so I wanted to communicate my heart on this because as I've prayed about where to go next, we've been doing this more of a doctrinal series of why the cross and looking at multiple passages of just really just, just sensing and, and, and discerning where, God, where are you leading us? I really sense that he's leading us into 1 Timothy um, to begin walking through from chapter one, verse one, all the way through to the end in chapter six. And so we're gonna be doing that over a longer period of time. There'll be a couple of, of different things that are going on. In a few weeks, we're gonna be doing a 28 days of prayer um, journey together leading up to New Orleans hosting the Southern Baptist Convention. And while that may just seem like a boring business meeting to a lot of folks, um, it's preceded by a lot of really great ministry in our city. And so we're gonna have a big part in that we're gonna be a hub um, that week before the convention for a lot of ministry that's going on in the city. And so stay tuned with that Tuesday newsletter and the Friday newsletter um, of what's going on and opportunities that you're gonna to have to be able to serve um, during that week and to do evangelism, to do service projects. It's gonna be a really wonderful time. Um, as I sent out that letter to you on Friday, just communicating my heart that part of the reason I feel like God has led us to, to 1 Timothy to spend time in his word specifically here is because it deals so much with what we're dealing with. Um, you know, part of it is, you know, we, right now we're in, a, in an epidemic of a, of a lack of trust that we're like, man, I don't know who to trust. And, and what's become really bizarre for most of us is that we are trusting the wrong voices and distrusting the right voices. Um, that, that's one of the hard things. Part of it, you know, some of us are distrusting the word of God um, more maybe than we have before while trusting voices of people we don't even know. Uh, but it just sounds good. And so we, we kind of are pulled toward these voices. And so trust has become this big thing. Who do you trust? Which source of, of information do you trust? And, and can you trust leaders and things like that? Well, God's word speaks about trust and what we can trust and how to build meaningful relationships and what is the extent of our understanding of what messages to believe. And he even dives into that right here in chapter one with dealing with false teaching and things that are going on in the life of the church where you shouldn't trust these messages. You shouldn't trust these teachers um, and telling Timothy that he needs to to deal with these individuals. Um, he goes into the design of the family, talking about specifically about how husbands and wives are going to relate, but then also how that's gonna become a paradigm for then operation within the church of what is intended for design by God for his church is concerning pastors and deacons or overseers and deacons as we're gonna see in 1 Timothy. And so looking at those things, um, there's some passages that deal specifically with the, the role of women in ministry, which is a great question to ask, but then to say, how does God's word answer it? And so we're gonna be looking carefully at those sort of things. It deals with the vulnerable. Um, we, it's right for us to be concerned. We're even gonna see right here in chapter one that it is right and good for us to act ethically in accordance with this gospel, that this gospel is meant to lead to action. And so that action should take, take place immediately in your family, 
That in fact, if you are neglecting your family, if you have a widow in your family, Paul's gonna talk about, and you're neglecting her, then you're worse than an unbeliever. I mean, he really takes us to task on this of just being clear that there is an ethical value to this gospel. It's not just an idea to believe. It is a life transformational message that's meant to result in a changed lived life. And then he's gonna talk a little bit about sports. Um, he's gonna talk about the value of personal fitness as being only something that points to spiritual fitness. And he's gonna talk about these imageries of fighting the good fight. And so if you're in it for a good fight, then you need to be in it for First Timothy. It's gonna be a wonderful study as we walk through together and we do these things together. We spend an extended time of prayer together, praying to the God of the harvest to send more laborers into his harvest, praying to the, to, to the God of boldness to give us boldness, um, to be able to communicate his love effectively in our city by proclaiming the gospel. Um, all of these things are gonna be done. And so that's gonna all take place in First Timothy. And so this morning, as we turn to 1 Timothy and we dive in, um, I want us to be able to look at this real focal point verse right here in the beginning of chapter one that really for me is I was studying. So anytime that we're turning to a new book of the Bible, and I'll be honest with you, I've never preached through 1 Timothy. I've preached through a lot of different books of the Bible, but 1 Timothy is not a book of the Bible that I've ever preached all the way through. So as I was doing all of this buildup work, you know, where I've got a, a bunch of commentaries and I'm doing my background stuff and I'm really understanding the historical context and I'm doing all this work, you know, sometimes it can get a little muddled, you know, like, I don't know if you've ever done that, you know, where you're like building up to something kind of big and it's like all of this data, all of this stuff. And as then as I'm praying, I'm like, God, just give simplicity, give clarity, all of these things. All of a sudden, verse five in particular just came into great clarity. And so this morning, I'm gonna invite you to stand in honor of God because it's his word that we read. It's he who speaks to you in these moments. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna do a little bit different textual division. We're gonna read verses one through seven, and then we're gonna hop down to verse 18 and read verses 18 through 20. And then over the next couple of weeks, we're gonna come back to that middle section. But I hope that you'll see how these things fit together. And so beginning in 1 Timothy chapter one, verse one, hear this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God, our savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. Now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and turned aside to fruitless discussion. They want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they are saying or what they are insisting on. And then hopping down to verse 18. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this instruction in keeping with the, pro the prophecies previously made about you so that by recalling them, you may fight the good fight, having faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Will you pray with me? Father, I'm so grateful for your word and I pray that during these, these weeks and months together in 1 Timothy that you would speak. And Father, that we would remember that right here at the outset that all that you speak to 
in 1 Timothy, the intended goal is love. And it's a love, Father, that you define it as your love, this agape love, the love that you have for us and the love that then in Christ you call us to have for one another and those who are far from you. And so, Lord, would you transform us? Would you define what love is for us according to your word and fill us with your spirit that we might love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love our neighbor as ourself? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. As you're being seated, I want to quickly give a shout out. Um, yesterday was a wonderful time of, of having a crawfish boil together. Um, on Monday or Tuesday of the week, we realized that rain was heavily in the forecast. And so we made this, this seismic shift that was pulled off really by Bob Moore, Johnny Parker, Latroy Womack, and Diane Vilmeret in particular. And so would you just join me in thanking them real quick? of taking an outdoor event and making it an indoor event. And then so many of you helped stick around to help clean up and turn the building back around. It was an incredible time. I love that I heard that at the table were conversations where people were hearing the gospel, um, where people were, were having conversations about the faith and about, about what true doctrine, you know, what is true, what you can trust, about what was going on there. It was an incredible time together, but I never wanna pass up the opportunity to thank our incredible staff and, and those servant those servants that we have called deacons here at First Baptist New Orleans that are faithfully serving behind the scenes, especially during times like yesterday. As we turn our attention to God's word, I want you to understand this, that the goal is love. The goal is love. That's the, that's the title of this series because I believe that is this aspect of what this instruction, this command of Paul is leading to, he's wanting us to understand that the goal of it is love. And it is not a trite love. It is not a love that you can buy on February 14th. It's not a love for pizza. It's not even a love for crawfish, as much as we love those things. This is a God-sized love that transforms everything. Everything. And he is communicating that what you are after, what you and I are after from the moment we enter into the world is love. The moment a baby enters into the, the arms of a parent, they are looking up desperate into the eyes of a, of a newborn parent for love. We are hardwired for love. We need it, we crave it, but because of sin, we seek it in all the wrong ways. We demonstrate it in selfish ways. And what we desperately need is a God who defines what love is. God is love. We need this God to transform our understanding of what love is that will transform how we love one another and we love all of those around us, loving our neighbor as ourself. We think just like any newlywed husband thinks he knows what love is. But I look back at the love that I had for my wife, Cole, 20 years ago. And I would say that love was likened to a hate in comparison to the love that I have for her today. You say, Chad, you, you hated Cole your first year? No, but my love for her was just that selfish. It was more about me than it was about her. But over 20 years, I've been in awe 
and how God has helped me to understand who she is and to celebrate who she is and to understand the joy of serving her as her husband and of, of loving her as the mother of our children and of walking in this life together with her as my helpmate. It is an incredible joy to experience a deepening love that causes previous love to look weak and puny. And brothers and sisters, that's my hope for us. That was Paul's hope for Timothy and for the church in Ephesus. Get the picture? This is a church where Paul was led. He had invested over two years of his own life with these people. He loved the church at Ephesus. These were people that he was dear to. When we turn over in the Bible to the book of Acts, we see that it's the elders of Ephesus that he meets on a beach in Acts chapter 20. And literally with tears, I mean, they are sobbing over the fact that he is headed to Jerusalem. He has to tear himself away from them because his heart is just that entwined with the church at Ephesus. So in leaving Timothy here to deal with false teaching, I mean, he's, he's leaving Timothy here, his true son in the faith, to deal with those whom he loves so deeply that with tears he has to be pulled away from them. Love. Love that Paul has made clear to them and love that he knows, like we've just sung, is prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. And he knows because he warns them on the beach that day in Acts chapter 20 that there are going to be wolves that come in and try to devour the flock. That's what he warns them on, on that beach that day. And here he picks up with Timothy writing and communicating that you gotta deal with these wolves, these false teachers who are teaching an other doctrine, hetero uh, doctrine, this other teaching this other teaching that's characterized in all these ways, you've got to deal with these things. And so church, we realize that in these passages that there is something that threatens our love, but it may be not what you expect. In the source of love, you might think you know. Well, it's just more in times of musical worship. And specifically, a lot of times what we'll say is it's more time of the specifical music worship that I prefer that if it was done in the way that I would like it done, then my heart would be full of love and I would be able to love God more and be able to love one another more. We think we understand the source of love, but thanks be to God, he has made clear right here in this word where this love comes from. You see, in verse five, this is the central verse of our text today that we're gonna look at and kind of uses a springboard back into other passages. He says, now the goal of our instruction, and the word instruction there is almost a little too light. It, it can be translated, the, the goal of our command. So it's kind of like, you know, when a parent comes to a child and they've not done what they asked, and the, and the parent says, what was my instruction? I mean, it was very clear, this was what I, I expected you to clean up your room when I said clean up your room, okay? And so you didn't clean up your room, so you missed the goal of my instruction. Paul is saying the goal of our instruction is love. But notice where he says it comes from. And this is important for every one of us because he is hoping that this love, that from this command, 1 Timothy, that we're reading right now together as a church, the timeless living word of God, that the same source that was producing love over 2,000 years ago will be the same source of a God-sized love today. And notice what he says, that comes 
from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. They're all governed by one preposition. They all come from. So it's almost like he's doing like your grandmother does and says, you know, the best recipes are the simplest. Three ingredients. Ever had one of those three ingredient dishes where you're like, man, this is incredible. What's the secrets? Three, three ingredients. Three ingredients. Three ingredients. A pure heart, a sincere conscience. I mean, since a good conscience and a sincere faith. And so what I want us to do today in the time that we have together is to look at each of these ingredients. What Paul is saying, this is how you get to love. This is where love comes from. You and I are desperate for love. We want to understand and experience the love that God has for us and then to love God. And we are desperate to show a selfless love to one another and to experience a selfless love from others. Paul is saying, here's the road. Here's the ingredients. It's not what you think, but this is what you need. And here it is, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So let's look at it first. Love comes, first of all, from a pure heart, a pure heart. Now, if I ask for a show of hands, who has a pure heart in this room? I hope very few hands go up, okay? Part of it is because sometimes when we think, well, yeah, my heart's you know, pure as gold, sometimes our self-awareness is really low. And all it would take is one or two conversations with those who know you best to bring about an awareness of just, you know, how divided the intentions of your heart can be at times. But there is another reality that, that this speaks to, of the pure heart that we receive through faith in Jesus. I want you to see it in verses one and two. You see, even the way that Paul greets Timothy and, and addresses who God is, shows his hand of what it is to have a pure heart. How, do, how does our heart become pure? Some of you are in this room right now, and that is what is weighing on you the most, is that you, you are fully aware that your heart is dirty. Like, I mean, like that is what weighs on you. You know what you did. You know what you've done. And you carry it around, and it is just weighing on you and weighing on you. Notice what Paul says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command, the command, in other words, like, you know, I didn't, I didn't really have a choice, and my choice was disobedience. This is what God has commanded for me to do and to be. Notice what he says, of God, our Savior. Now, some of you might say, well, I thought Jesus was our Savior. I, I thought that, you know, we as, we, when we confess faith in Jesus, we say, you know, he's my Savior and Lord. Yes, keep reading. And of Jesus Christ, our hope. Well, Chad, I thought my hope was heaven. I, I thought that, that that's what I was looking forward to, that, you know, like I, I die and then I go to heaven. That's my hope is I'm just hoping to get to heaven kind of thing. Not, not a person. Let the word correct you and give you clarity to what your hope is. That it's not a place, it is a person. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, and notice what he's received, grace, undeserved love, mercy, not getting what you deserve, peace. Peace from God the Father. You say, well, Chad, I thought peace came from the Holy Spirit. I thought, I thought that he was the, the comforter. Yes. 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. You say, Chad, I'm a little confused by these first couple of verses. Words that modify who God is, I thought that that's who Jesus was. Words that modify who the Father is, I thought that that's who the Spirit was. And words that talked about the Son speak back to the Father. Chad, I'm a little confused about this. It seems like there's three persons maybe at work in the Bible who are all kind of being pointed to as God. That's exactly right. That is a distinction of our faith from every other world faith. We believe that there is one God, one God, one being who is eternally, meaning always has been, always will be, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you say, Chad, this is getting a little confusing. Welcome to theology. Theology is an incredible privilege to be able to think about who God is, but listen, We are not to just be left in a closet to think on our own. We are invited into a relationship with the living God in his word. And so we understand these realities that other world religions, Muslims will look you square in the face and say, you believe a heresy. You believe there's three gods. That's it. When we go, in fact, we're sending a team out this week to go to North Africa. That's the number one objection that they will meet while they are there when they begin to have conversations about the gospel. Every Muslim is taught to tell a Christian, you have three gods, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three gods. And many of us as Christians sometimes are like, I don't know how to explain that. Or worse, sometimes we use analogies that end up teaching another teaching of who God is. And so a helpful way to understand it, just to give to you today, is to think in these terms. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father. They're distinct. Three distinct persons. But you can remember this. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. So there's one being who is eternally coexistent as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it is to this God that Paul points and reminds Timothy that this is how you have come to have a pure heart. This is how your heart has been cleansed. It's because God the Father sent the Son who worked by his Holy Spirit to bring you to a place Well, let me just read it this way. I give thanks to Christ Jesus, beginning in verse 12, our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry, even though I was formerly a blasphemer. This is Paul, a a persecutor and an arrogant man. In other words, listen to the condition of his heart. I, I hated the wrong things. I loved the wrong things. But I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. And the grace, the undeserved love of our Lord overflowed along with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Thus the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I'm the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Pure heart comes from the one who gives a pure heart. It doesn't come from your ability to purify your own heart. A pure heart comes as a gift from a God who delights to save sinners. 
If you have realized in your life that you're a sinner and ask God to forgive you, then you know what it is to now have a pure heart because he cleanses every heart of the person that comes to him in faith and asks. But if you're like Paul and saying, I'm an arrogant person, even though you wouldn't say it, I, 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 pro, I persecute the right things, perhaps maybe it's the wrong things, then maybe by his grace, he might help you to see that you, like Paul, could say, I'm actually the worst of sinners because I thought I was the best of them. Pure heart. One New Testament scholar pointed out as I was reading about pure heart in particular, that there is this dual aspect about a pure heart one that comes from the saving work of Jesus Christ, that once for all salvation, that when you prayed and you asked God to forgive you of your sins, he did, and he cleansed you of all your sin. You are forgiven. But there's a second sense that, that this New Testament scholar was pointing out of what happens when we on a regular basis confess our sin to the Lord, admitting on a regular basis that I have fallen short of the glory of God that I've messed up, that, that I acted in willful disobedience, that, that I did the wrong thing. And the way he likened it is that it's kind of like dishes that Jesus points to in the gospel that they would be clean in a, in a ceremonial sense, but then they would become unclean and so they'd have to be cleansed again. So you don't just smash the plate, get rid of the plate, but the plate would be clean and then unclean, then clean and then unclean, and then clean and then unclean. And he suggested that there's a sense in which that's how the purity of our hearts work. That it's good and right for you and I to regularly confess our failings to the Lord. You say, well, Chad, but I've already been forgiven. Yes. And my wife has committed herself to me, but it is a good thing for me to go to her when I failed in our marriage and just admit that failure, right, Aristide? Just to say to her, hey, I was selfish in that moment. Hey, I was, I was short-tempered in that moment and that was not an appropriate response. I'm sorry about that. It's not as though the, the relationship has been severed, but I'm telling you, it increases our intimacy of love for one another when we are honest about our failings and the same happens in our relationship with the Lord. That purity of heart comes from just a steady confession on a regular basis that, you know what, I've blown it. Just being honest with God about your failures. Second, love comes from a good conscience. A good conscience. Now, this idea of a good conscience comes from doing the right thing with the right beliefs. In other words, your heart has been purified. That is intended to result in a life lived with a pure heart. Now, many of us, listen, this is gonna speak to us, okay? This is where it's gonna be like a little bit of stepping on toes. And listen, please know, just from the outset, I just wanna say as clearly as I can, that I am not, when I sometimes talk about a specific sin or tendency, that may be present at large in the church, I'm not always saying that it is an acute problem at First Baptist New Orleans. I've had really good conversations with a lot of you as, as members that, that have often come up after maybe a sermon and said, man, are, are, we, are we this sick at, at First Baptist New Orleans? Like, are we, are we just this awful or things like that? The answer is not always, okay? So listen, let's just be honest, right? Are we, are we perfect? 
Have we got it all figured out? Are we without any error? No, we're not. And so sometimes it is true to something that maybe we're going through. And maybe it's not true for you, but maybe the guy next to you. It might be something that he's dealing with or that she's dealing with. So listen, know that when I have to deal with these things and I have to speak about things that confront us as the people of God, it's not a, in a, in a, with a desire to say, man, y'all are really awful people. I wish you were more like me. It's not an arrogance. It's not a me saying, I've got it all figured out and you don't. It is the love of a pastor who knows that what we need is the word of God. You see, I'm a shepherd, but I'm still a sheep. And so just like you, I need the good shepherd to shepherd my heart. You wanna know how he does it? You know how he's gonna do it in your life? With his word. This is how he's ordained to shepherd us as his people. Under shepherds, which is what I am, I'm under the good shepherd. I am called to shepherd you in accordance with his word. You know why? Because you're his sheep, not mine. You don't need the book of Chad to go with the Bible. You definitely don't need the book of Chad, okay? It would just be a manual of what not to do, okay? That would be all that it is. But you and I need the word of God. And so when we come to the word of God and we experience the truth of his word as a church, know that I am speaking his word and trying to apply it faithfully, but not in a heavy-handed way of of pushing you aside. So I I just say that in in pastoral love for you um, because of a result of, of several conversations of what I think maybe has been a misunderstanding of my intention for us as a church. So I just say that, you know, I mess up all the time, just ask my kids, all right? So, but as we go through, I want to apply some of these things. And one of the tendencies that even here at First Baptist New Orleans, okay? So I'm just gonna go ahead and just speak very plainly that we can gravitate to is that the, the Christian life is just a life of learning more and more and more. It, it, that the Christian life is just a conversation, that the Christian life is just huddling up for an hour here and there in order to do even a Bible study. And you say, well, Chad, are you against Bible study? Absolutely not. But when we reduce the Christian life to just a conversation, just a one hour a week group that you get together and talk about some ideas, we have missed the point. That's what a good conscience comes from. What he's pointing to with good conscience is that we are doing what is right with what is true. That we are acting consistently with the pure heart that God has given us, we're now taking action with, with pure actions. We're living the life that he wants us to live. Notice how he contends against, like he's saying, these are the things that lead us astray from a good conscience. As I urged you, verse three, when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct. And again, it's the same word instruct that we see in verse five, command. So he's not just saying like suggest to the false teachers, hey, can we maybe not do that as much or whatever? He is saying, no, tell them plainly, stop teaching this, stop doing this. And so know that sometimes now as an extension of this apostolic ministry, under shepherds sometimes have to speak directly to teachers when there's teachers that are teaching things that are false, to say, we can't keep teaching that. I need you to stop doing that. That's part of what God's good design is for the body, for health. Instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine, not to teach false doctrine. And we say, well, Chad, well, who's the arbiter of who's, what's false and what's true? God, God's the arbiter of what is true. And his word is that standard. So that is why we go back to the word over and over and over again. That's how we discern what is false and what is true. 
false doctrine, or notice kind of some of the other symptoms of it, or pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. You say, well, what kind of myths are we talking about? Like what, what, what's going on in this context? Well, it's anything that's taking them away from this central teaching about who Jesus is. Paul shows us a little bit about what that central teaching is in 1 Timothy, I mean, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he says, I wanna remind you of what I taught you as primary or, or of, of greatest importance. And he, then he goes right into the gospel, talking about what the gospel is, that, that Christ was crucified according to the scriptures. He was buried, he was then resurrected, he was seen by many witnesses, he then ascended into heaven, and one day he's going to return, and that represents this resurrection that Paul spends the rest of 1 Corinthians 15 speaking about. And so he's expounding the gospel, and so it's almost as though he's suggesting, both here and in other places, that what becomes the main paradigm for our understanding of all of the scriptures is the gospel. In other words, if you want to understand the Old Testament rightly, then you must understand the gospel rightly. If you misunderstand the gospel, then you're very likely to misunderstand the Old Testament. Without understanding that Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets and the Psalms, then you will read the law and the prophets and the Psalms missing the main point, who is Jesus. And you say, I mean, I just put Jesus in all kinds of crazy places and I just, you know, make up stuff? No, that's where myths can develop. That's where we have to begin to be trained by the word of how does the New Testament treat the Old Testament? Where does the New Testament say is a fulfillment passage of, of the Old Testament? And begin to train ourselves in that way so that we don't go off and so that we don't go off in these genealogies. You say, well, what's the big deal about genealogies? I mean, like I do ancestry.com. Is that a bad thing? No, no, no. That's not what he's talking about. It's about you knowing where you came from or doing one of those, you know, uh, saliva tests or whatever, you know, to test your, your DNA. That's not what he's getting at. What he's getting at is that people were doing these, these elaborate, you know, systems of genealogies in order to point to the significance of birth line of trying to get back to, you know, oh, I've got this person as my father and I'm of this family line. So that means something special and unique for me. And all of these things that were kind of taking these new disciples, these new believers in these crazy directions that they began believing, man, I'm only saved by grace. But now believing, well, actually, you know what? I think I've got this family line connection that like if I'm now in this part, you know, like that means, no. Paul's saying you've got to be on your guard against this stuff because people get down the rabbit hole with these genealogies and with all of these studies and these myths and these weird takes on stuff that lead people astray. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. Now, let's be careful here too, that we don't make faith something empty. Faith just like, well, you know, I don't understand it, so I just have to believe it by faith. We are invited into a thoughtful comprehension of God's word. Please understand that, that when the Bible is calling us to faith, it, it does not ask us to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ without evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, understand that, that there is empirical evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's what Paul does. He says he was seen by many witnesses, 500 at one time. He's saying, no, 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 I'm not asking you to believe something that is just fictitious or stupid. We're asking you to believe the word of God because you know what? You can't see bodily the resurrected Jesus Christ. So you have to believe by faith 
those things that you read that are credible. And that is faith that operates by faith. Now, the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and turned aside to fruitless discussion. They wanna be teachers of the law, though they don't understand what they are saying and what they are insisting on. Now, we're gonna dive into this a little bit deeper. We're gonna talk about how they're misusing the Old Testament in some ways that were leading people astray. But Paul quickly hops over at the end of the chapter to say, here's an example of what happens. When you don't operate in these ways, he talks about these examples of Hymenaeus and Alexander that we'll look at in just a moment. But a good conscience, brothers and sisters, leads us in this letter to then treat those who are most vulnerable among us with the love of Christ. He's gonna deal specifically with widows in 1 Timothy, talking about the significance of caring for those who are unable to care for themselves. And we can begin to apply that in our day in many ways. And I'm so thankful for the deacon ministry, the servants of First Baptist New Orleans who break into teams. And one of the teams of these servants is to care for our homebound members, many of whom maybe are watching from home today and we greet you and thank God for you, but also for those widows in our congregation. That is important. But Paul says it's important for you individually also that if there's someone in your life Someone, a widow that's in your sphere of, of care, family relationship, it's important that you demonstrate your faith by caring for her, a good conscience. And then finally, faith, I mean, love comes from a sincere faith. Love comes from a sincere faith. Just a moment ago, I read the testimony that Paul gave of how he came to faith in Jesus Christ, of how it was that he believed that God saved sinners and he was the chief of them. And that remains the faith to which we are invited. But brothers and sisters, we need the warning that when we do not include these ingredients of sincere faith, good conscience, and a pure heart, but yet we're striving for love, what happens when we don't include, we don't follow God's design for how to achieve love in the body? He says in verse 18, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you so that by recalling them, you may fight the good fight, having faith, notice, and a good conscience, meaning you're acting in accordance with that faith. Some have rejected these. In other words, they said, you know what? I think I can get to love a different route. I, I, don't, I don't need these ingredients of a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. There's another way, there's a, there's a genealogical way into the kingdom. There's a mythical way into the kingdom. There's, there's some other way in order to experience the love of God and to demonstrate the love of God. What happens when we reject his recipe? Well, some have rejected these and have shipwrecked their faith. Shipwrecked their faith. One day I was driving along Lake Pontchartrain and one of the things that fascinates me about our city is how you can watch on the lake as a front comes in. And many times you can see it just almost like a wall coming across from the North Shore to the South Shore and then just hitting. And if it's not lightning too bad, I actually enjoy going out to the lake and sitting on a bench and just getting soaked. Um, it's, it's one of those things, it's an odd thing about me, but I don't mind the force of that front coming through and just hitting me. And so I'd been out at the lake one day and because I had a meeting to be at shortly thereafter, I could see the front building and, and all of those things. So I went out there just to see 
see it. And man, I mean, it just hit with the force of a hurricane. It was incredible that day. And so as I was then riding along the lake, I noticed that there was a boat, a boat that was probably only 20 feet from the shore. It was one of these boats where you could go down below and had like a little compartment, had twin engines on the back, and the guy was running around on the, on the deck, just frantic, you could tell. And at this point, apparently it was too late for him to get back out into open water and the front had pushed him in and he was about to be slamming into the steps of the, of the, uh, of the levee there, those concrete steps all along the lake. And so I'm sitting there watching it and just, just wondering like, is he gonna turn on the boat and start going or is he, you know, well, what's gonna happen here? And, and I noticed there's another car parked right in front of me. And so finally, at this moment, I can see that the guy is looking at the steps and he's now getting closer and then bam, bam, his boat just starts slamming into the levee steps, those concrete steps. So at that moment, I get out of my car, soaking wet, run over. And at the same time, a guy in full scuba gear, okay, I, I can't make this stuff up, a full scuba gear who had been instructing scuba you know, diving at UNO, just like was leaving the class, you know, like whatever, came up and was still in his gear. And so there we are both in the pouring down rain, this guy, and we're like, jump, you know, like just jump. And so this guy finally, one smash, he jumps over, we both grab him and pull him in. And then that boat just keeps getting smashed and smashed until a hole punctures. And within just a few minutes, it was sunk, sunk right there, this nice boat. And can I tell you, as I then brought that guy home, what he shared with me? I fell asleep, I fell asleep. Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Brothers and sisters, it is a sleepiness with which we approach pursuing God, not an alertness to his word, carefully considering exactly what he says, that can result in that shipwreck where you just fell asleep. You just fell asleep, but Jesus wasn't in the boat. You weren't operating by faith. And then all of a sudden, like Alexander and Hymenaeus, and you say, man, that's kind of cruel, isn't it? Here we are 2,000 years later, still remembering two guys that blew it. That's the weight. Let that 2,000 year remembrance remember, remind you that what's at stake is eternity. Eternity. Not just 2,000 years, but all of eternity. It should lead every one of us to say, I want that love. And if the ingredients are that it only comes through a pure heart, a sincere faith, and a good conscience, then I say yes to that. When I was 16 years old was when I realized that I didn't have a pure heart. It was when I realized that my guilty conscience was something that I couldn't cleanse and make good. When I was 16 years old, that's when I realized that I didn't have a sincere faith. I was borrowing the faith of a parent. They were bringing me to church. They were putting me in the right place, but my faith was not my own. And that was the day that I realized like Paul that I'm a sinner, that I was the chief of sinners and that what I needed was 
his grace and forgiveness. And so I prayed a prayer that day where I just say, God, I know that I'm a sinner. Personal acknowledgement, personal ownership, not blaming somebody else, not blaming my condition, not blaming anything else. God, I'm a sinner. I know that I've sinned. And I know that you gave Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. And so Lord, today I'm asking you, will you forgive me? Will you take away my sinful heart and give me a new heart? God, as best as I know how, I want Jesus Christ to be the Lord of my life, to be my king from this day forward. And that was a day where God changed me. And do you wanna know the first fruits, the first reality that changed in my life was a new love for God that had not been there before. You see, what God commands, what he instructs, he also enables. He calls you and me to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's impossible for us to do with our dead heart, our heart of stone. But when we trust him and when he gives us a pure and new heart, the first thing that starts to beat in it is a love for him, to love him. And then immediately I had a new love that was not there before for my great-grandmother. I didn't treat her with respect before that point, all of a sudden, I had a, an affection that was not my own, that came from another, from my great-grandmother. And that's how God works, love for him and then love for others. He changes us. If you're here today and you've never come to that place where you have personally acknowledged your sin before the Lord, where you have repented, turned away from it and said, I wanna give my life to you, Lord. I wanna invite you today to do just that. I wanna invite you to literally leave your seat and to come forward and say, I wanna give my life to Jesus. I wanna follow him. And I wanna invite everybody in this room to be praying for those who have never done that. But I realize that many of you have. Know that First Timothy is an invitation to continue to pursue love through a pure heart, confessing your sin. Maybe some of you need to confess sin today good conscience. Maybe there's something you've been putting off and you need to take action on this week in a sincere faith. Maybe just being honest about some of the doubts that you've been carrying and saying, I'd like to talk to somebody about the doubts that I have right now, because I do want a sincere faith. Wherever you are, I invite you to respond to God's grace today. Let's all stand. Father, I pray that in these moments of response, as we sing a song of worship and Lord, as others are dealing, Father, with the power of your grace in this moment, they are just feeling, God, that, that invitation to come and to follow and give their life to Jesus. I pray they would not reject. I pray that they would, they would surrender to him today. And for all of us, Lord, that we would live surrendered lives. I pray this in Christ's name. If you're here today, I invite you to come forward and to make that faith known today. Let's sing.